Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. Wonderful to be here tonight and to be able to open up God's Word together and study a portion of it. Uh, we are going to start tonight uh, embarking on a series on the case for the inspiration of the Bible. And so for the next several times that I'm, I'm preaching, we'll be walking through this series. We're going to start that uh, tonight. I believe, brothers and sisters, that the Bible is an inspired book. I believe that it is a supernatural book, an extraordinary book that God has breathed out, has inspired people to write, and that it contains power within it that changes lives. It contains power within it that ultimately gives us salvation and a home in heaven, but even in this life, provides us the tools to be a good person, a good Christian, a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good employee, a good employer, and any other type of person that you want to mention. The Bible is a guidebook to a successful, contented life here and ultimately in eternity. And I believe that with all of my heart. But there are those in this world that don't and that look at the Bible as nothing more than a religious text written by people similar to other religious texts from other religions written by people and that there's nothing special about this book. And so the purpose of this series is to look at some internal and external evidences for the inspiration of the scriptures and talk about things that hopefully can be grounding for our faith and can be strengthening and encouraging to us as we walk with Christ and we build that relationship with God. And if we have ever been in a situation where we have doubted the inspiration of the scriptures, I hope these things can help to reinforce our minds. Tonight in part one, we're going to talk about is the Bible textually reliable? And basically what I mean by that is, can we trust that the words we are reading on the page or on our phones today are the same words that were written 2,000, 3,000 years ago? And that's the question that we want to tackle tonight. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, the scripture says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter is teaching us here that those Old Testament specifically books and passages, they were written through the inspiration of God, that God moved men to write those things. And so we're going to look at that claim and see if that's true. First of all, we want to discuss what the Bible is because there is some confusion out there a little bit in what exactly is contained within the Bible. You see, we think of the Bible as one book, but really the Bible is a collection of different books. There are actually 66 books within the Bible itself. There are two main divisions of the Bible. One is called the Old Testament. The other is called the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books within it, and they are outlined here. I know it's a little bit small on this picture, but separated into some categories. I've also got them on the left there. The first five books of the Old Testament are the books that are attributed to Moses having written those, and they contain some of what we read tonight. Uh, relating to the law, and of course Genesis relating to this, the beginning of mankind. And then we've got 12 books of history that follow the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and their history and their walk with God. We've got five books of poetry, and then we've got 17 prophetical books, five of which are known as the major prophets, 
and 12 of which are known as the minor prophets. And this is not because any of those prophets were more important than any of the other ones. It's simply because five of those books written by four of four actual prophets, but those five books are large books. So they're just called the major prophets. The other 12 are very small books. And so they're known as the minor prophets, not due to importance, just due to size. And that ends the Old Testament. The second division of the Bible is the New Testament. And in it, it are contains 27 books. The first four of which are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells the story of Jesus and him coming down to earth to become that sacrifice, that lamb. Then we have one book of history called the Acts of the Apostles. And it outlines the history of the early church after Christ's ascension uh, back up to heaven. And then we have 13 books that were written by the Apostle Paul or attributed to him and another nine epistles that were written by others. And these epistles are letters that are written to congregations or individuals, and they have varying purposes for being written. But that makes up those 66 books, what we call the Bible today. And so the Bible is actually 66 books, and it was written during a span of over 1,500 years. You can look at those dates there. It could be more than 1,500 years. Some people attribute uh, Job's date of being written to very, very early, actually possibly being the first book that was written. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but some people do. And so it could be even more than 1,500 years, but we've at least got a 1,500-year span where different authors are contributing to this book we call the Bible. It was also written by about 40 authors from various walks of life in at least three languages. Consider some of the authors that we find in the Bible. Moses was a prince of Egypt and then a leader of God's people. David was a king. Amos was a shepherd. Isaiah was a prophet. Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor. Peter was a fisherman. They all have very different backgrounds, very different levels of education. We've got people from all walks of life that God is using to contribute to this book we call the Bible. And it was written in three different languages. The Old Testament primarily is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is primarily written in Greek. There's some Aramaic in there as well. So 40 authors, 1,500 years, 66 books, three languages, and three continents in Europe, Asia, and Africa. We think about some of the places that these authors wrote in. Moses wrote in the desert of Mount Sinai. Daniel wrote while he was in exile in Babylon. Ezra wrote in the ruined city of Jerusalem. And Paul wrote many of his letters from a prison cell in Rome. And so we've got three different continents uh, that, that are represented in these books as well. Its writers had very different purposes for writing. Um, and all of them do, but I'll give you a few illustrations here. Isaiah was writing in his book to warn the Israelites, the Jewish people, of God's coming judgment because of their sin. Zechariah wrote to encourage a disheartened Israel who had returned from Babylonian exile and to encourage them. Luke wrote to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and also to chronicle the early church. He wrote the book of Acts as well as the book of Luke. Paul wrote addressing problems in different Asian and European churches, congregations everywhere. Okay, So different purposes behind each of the books that are contained in the Bible. One of the things that we're going to look at as we go through this series is as we think about that information that I've just presented, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years in three different languages and three different continents with different purposes behind the writing, different circumstances, different places, you would think 
that if it's not an inspired book, we would have messages that are all over the place. We would have disagreements. There would be conflicts throughout those books. There would be people attributing things to God that others don't and vice versa. There should be mass confusion with 40 different people contributing over 1,500 years to 66 books in three different languages, so on and so forth. And yet what I want to discuss with you throughout this series is the fact that that's not what we see. What we see is continuity. What we see is consistency. What we see is 66 books that all tell one basic story about God's relationship with mankind and bringing us ultimately redemption from our sins. And that's the story that we find. The Bible itself claims to be inspired. And we already read Peter claiming that. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, Paul wrote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word inspiration or the inspiration of God there means divinely breathed. This was God pouring out his words to people. Galatians chapter 1, this is Paul writing to the churches of Galatia. He says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want to notice that the Old Testament claims to be inspired, and the New Testament does as well. Paul is saying, I'm not writing this stuff of my own hand, of my own knowledge. I'm writing the stuff that has been revealed to me by Jesus Christ. There's another passage in Peter where Peter talks about Paul's writings as being Scripture. And so we've got Peter confirming the fact that the things that were being written by the Apostle Paul were Scriptures inspired by God. So the Old Testament and the New Testament both make this claim. But how can we know that that claim is true? This is kind of the roadmap of what we're going to look at tonight. We're talking about the textual reliability of the Bible. In part two, we'll talk about prophecies in the Bible. Part three, we'll talk about science as it relates to the Bible. Part four, we'll talk about history and archaeology as it relates to the Bible. And then part five, we'll talk about the consistency and the power of the message that is contained within those 66 books. So I want to now bring you to talking about some manuscript evidence. This idea of, is the Bible reliable? Can we trust the words we're reading today are the same words that were actually originally penned? And the skeptic's argument goes like this. The Bible has been translated and recopied so many times that you can't trust what you're reading. In fact, this was the argument that a man named Bill Nye used uh, in a debate. You may remember if you watched it several years ago, back in 2014, uh, Bill Nye is a science educator. He's also an atheist. He debated a creationist named Ken Ham. And in that debate, he makes this very argument. He says, you give me verses as translated into English over what? 30 centuries? So that is not enough evidence for me. If you've ever played telephone, I did. I remember very well in kindergarten where you have a secret and you whisper it to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. Things often go wrong. And so what this Bible skeptic is using as his argument is he says the translation and copying of scripture is much like the game telephone. If you ever played the game telephone when you were a kid, I did. I remember that game. You get around in a circle with your friends. You whisper a secret into this person's ear and they whisper it and whisper it and whisper it. It goes all around, way around the circle. By the time it gets to the end, it's usually something pretty different from what it started because you're mishearing and then saying something that's different. And, and so it changes the message. And that's what Bill Nye says the copying and translations of the scripture is like. You just can't trust it. You don't know how much has changed. So I want to disprove that tonight as we walk through how we got our English Bible and why we can trust that what we're reading really is 
the message that was intended to reach us. And then, of course, we'll have more discussions related to does that mean that it's inspired and looking at some of the evidence related to that. But first, I want to establish the fact that the Bible can be trusted. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's put ourselves back in the time of the Old Testament and New Testament as they're pinning these, these books or writing these letters. What would they have used? So there's a couple of different writing instruments they would have used. There on the left is a parchment scroll. Parchment was made from dried animal skins. It was a very, very popular form of paper, so to speak, in that time period. Uh, there's also a papyrus scroll comes from the papyri plant, and they would have harvested that plant, uh, cut it into real thin strips, uh, soaked it, pounded it, and then allowed it to dry, and it also was used as paper, essentially, for them as well. Uh, parchment was much longer lasting. Uh, papyrus scrolls didn't tend to have longevity uh, like the parchment did, so many of the manuscripts we're going to talk about tonight are on parchment, but there are some papyrus scrolls that have survived. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul, and remember in 2 Timothy, Paul is nearing his death. Um, this is the, the last book um, that, that Paul wrote, and he says to Timothy, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Now, Paul's in prison at this point, um, and he is asking Timothy to bring the parchments. Now, I wonder why he wants parchments. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's a writer. I mean, he's sitting in there in that, that prison cell, and he's writing letters to everybody. He's writing letters to churches. He's writing letters to people. And so why is he asking Timothy to bring parchments? So he can keep writing before his death, okay? And so we see those materials used. That's mentioned in that verse, 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. Now, after you've got an original copy, so let's say... Isaiah finishes his book of Isaiah. How do you go about copying and preserving that book and sharing and allowing it to be shared with more people? Or in the New Testament, Paul writes a letter and he sends it to Colossae for that church, but he's also telling these churches to spread it around and let the other churches read them and share them. So how do you go about doing that, preserving the words? Well, typically that fell to scribes. Scribes were professionals that could read and write and were uh, perfectionists, so to speak, in their craft of copying texts. That doesn't mean that they were literally perfect, but they took it very, very seriously. According to Dr. Brennan Breed, uh, he says, at the time which biblical books were written and copied, scribes did the work of composing and preserving important documents. Scribes were special because they could read and write. Literacy was not widespread. So you've got to think about in a world where not a whole lot of people could read and write, you needed people that could do that and that were good at it to copy these documents and preserve them. Now, here's what the scribes would do. Each word, as they take an original, so let's say they're taking the Isaiah scroll or they're taking a letter of the Apostle Paul and they're going to copy it. Each word in that original writing was read alone and allowed from an authentic copy before it was written. When the word God was encountered, the scribe's pen had to be wiped clean. When Yahweh was encountered, the scribe had to wash his body before he could write it, and that's out of reverence for the name of God as they're going through and making these copies. Each letter and each word had a set distance from one another and could not touch each other. And if those letters did touch, they would scrap the whole page and they would start again. Each letter and word was counted on each page. Each page was rigor rigorously checked 
in addition to counting, finding the beginning, midpoint, and ending letter, etc. Okay, so literally one of the things that they would do is as they're looking at an original page and they're about to copy it, they would look at what the first letter is, they would count the letters on the page, they would find the midpoint letter, and then the end letter. And once they got all the way through making a copy of that page, they had to go back and count and look and make sure that the beginning letter and the midpoint letter and the end letter were all exactly the same. And that would ensure that they had the correct number of letters, the correct number of words on the page. And if any mistake was found, that page was condemned. So scribes took that job very, very seriously. Now, as we think about from sort of an, an academic view of old texts, as the academic world looks at that and says, how can we ensure that this ancient text, uh, that, that the copies that we have really truly are reliable and we can trust them, they use a process that's called textual criticism. And basically that means it's the process of attempting to ascertain the original wording of a text. So they're criticizing the text. They're trying to make sure that they have the original wording. Now they carry that out by comparing and contrasting the copies that have been recovered. Okay, so let's think about it like this. If we've got uh, 20 copies of an old book, a very, very ancient book, let's say we don't have an original manuscript, we don't have the original parchment that it was written on, but we've got 20 different copies of it. We would take those 20 copies, the experts would take those 20 copies, they'd compare them, they'd contrast them, and they would do their very, very best to figure out what is the most accurate original wording that's intended in this text. And they would do that based, based on these two rules. And this textual criticism is based on these two rules that are very, very helpful when you're examining an ancient text. Rule number one is the closer the copies are to the original in history, the lower the chances are of textual corruption. That's just common sense, right? Let's say we've got a copy that was written five years after, or a copy that was made five years after the original, and a copy that was made 500 years after the original there's much greater chance that one that's 500 years after could be corrupted more than the one that was five years after because there's just not nearly as much time that's gone by. Theoretically, you're going to have a closer, uh, closer to original text. So that's known as the time gap. So you want a very small time gap. You want to have copies that are very close to the original. And rule number two is that the more copies that exist, the easier it is to determine, to determine the original reading because you're able to cross-reference a whole lot of texts. Instead of for example, you have two copies and that's all you ever have. All you can do is look at the two and hope that those two were accurate. If you've got 2,000, that gives you a whole lot more options to make sure that we can determine the original wording. All right. So textual criticism has been applied to the scriptures time and time again. And I want to share some of those results with you. Now, some basic information. First of all, there are nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay, so the New Testament was originally written in Greek. We do not have any of the original books of the New Testament or the Old Testament. We don't have any of the originals, but we have 6,000 copies. That's what a manuscript is. It's a copy or it's a partial copy of these books or these letters. There are over 24,000 partial and full manuscripts of the New Testament, including other languages. So over the period of time, and we're going to walk through that history in just a minute, uh, this, these were translated into Latin as well. So Latin copies are also included in here. Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, um, and other languages that it may or may not have been translated into throughout history. There's over 24,000 when you include all of those. Compared to other ancient literature, this is a wealth of evidence that points 
to the accuracy and reliability of the scriptures. Now, if you look at this chart, over on the left-hand side, you've got some famous authors throughout history of, of, of ancient texts. All right, so you've got Homer. Uh, everyone's heard of Homer, uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Uh, you've got Plato. You've got Tacitus, the Roman histori restor uh, historian. You've got Pliny the Elder. You've got several other uh, very famous ancient writers on there. Next to it, it kind of it lists the work that they that they uh, that they completed and has the date that it was written. And then the earliest MSS that just simply means manuscript. So the earliest manuscript versus the date that it was written. Okay, so for example, for example, Homer's The Iliad. It was written in 800 BC. The earliest manuscript that we have is from 400 BC. So the time gap is 400 years. The earliest copy of the Iliad that we have is 400 years after the original. Okay, that's the time gap. Um, and then you look over on the right uh, and just skip that old number because that's just showing that this information has been updated recently. Um, but on the far right, it says new. That's the amount of manuscripts that are in existence today. So for Homer's The Iliad, there are 1,800 or so manuscripts with the earliest being 400 years after the original. Okay. And then we can apply that same methodology, and it has been, to all of these other writers. Now, here's what I want you to focus on. The Greek New Testament. Okay, it says Greek New Testament manuscripts. They were written between 50 and 100 AD. The earliest partial manuscript that we have is from AD 130. Okay, so we're within 30 to 70-ish years from the original. That's the time gap, very small time gap. It has 50 there on the screen, just sort of as an average. And then 5,838, that's that nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts we mentioned a moment ago. So there are 6,000, triple the amount of manuscript that Homer's The Iliad has that there exists in, in, all, of, uh, in all of known uh, literature. And then most of those other ancient texts, there are very, very few manuscripts, but there are 6,000 Greek New Testaments. And then, again, you include those other languages in Latin and Hebrew and other languages, and there's 18,000 manuscripts. The Old Testament, there's 42,000-plus manuscripts, and here's my point. We take all that in, and we can illustrate it this way. What does the time gap for the New Testament tell us? Well, here's all of those other ancient writers that we mentioned, and their time gaps between the time it was actually written and the earliest copy we have in existence— are all fairly long, with the exception of a couple there at the bottom. But the New Testament is very, very short. Why is that important? Because we've got copies of the New Testament books that are very, very close in time frame to when those original letters and original books would have actually been penned. Okay, so that's helpful when you think about textual criticism. That was rule number one. You want a very small time gap, and there is for the New Testament. Now, rule number two was the amount or the number of manuscripts. We want as many manuscripts as possible so we can compare and contrast more of them and ensure that we come to the correct wording. And you can see all of these ancient writers have very, very few. Homer's got that 1,800, and the New Testament has the 6,000 manuscripts. So the amount of manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament books dwarfs all of the other famous ancient writers and their works. In other words, one, we can draw from that, 
there was something about these letters, about these books, that caused people to want to copy and copy and copy and share and spread, and that's why we have so many manuscripts. And I'm going to submit to you tonight that the reason for that is because they're not just ordinary letters and ordinary books, but it's because they are extraordinary, because they are inspired by God, and because people throughout time recognized that and copied them and shared them over and over and over again. But the second thing that we draw from that is the fact that we're not basing our English translations today off of two manuscripts of each book and hoping that we get it right and manuscripts that were a thousand years after the original was written. That's not what our English Bibles are based on. Our English Bibles are based on a wealth of manuscripts that go back very, very close to the time when they were originally written. Now, I saw this and thought it was interesting, and so I thought I would share with you. Um, it really doesn't do a whole lot to add to what we've just talked about, but I just thought it was fascinating. So these classical writers, these ancient texts, you take one of those average writers, and you take all of the manuscripts that we have in existence for any of their works. So Homer would be included in that, uh, Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, all those guys. So on average, if you took all of Tacitus's work and you stacked paper on top of paper on pa top of paper on top of paper, it would go up literally about four feet from the ground on average. But if you stacked all of the manuscripts that we have in existence of the New Testament, it would go up a mile high. If you stacked every single manuscript, one on top of the other, it would go up a mile high. For reference sake, the World Trade Center was 1,776 feet. A mile is, what, 5,280 feet? So triple the height of the World Trade Center. That's how high the stack of New Testament manuscripts would go if we stuck them on top of one another. The Old Testament would go up a mile and a half. So if you combined all of the manuscript evidence that we have for the Old and New Testament together, it would go up two and a half miles into the air. Again, doesn't add anything necessarily to the time gap and the number that we've talked about just to me was interesting to think about it in that respect. I can't even imagine what two and a half miles up in the air would even look like, but that's the amount of evidence that we have in the manuscripts. All right, so there was an important discovery made in 1946, and this is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And basically what happened was there was a young shepherd boy that was wandering around and he discovered a cave and he walked into this cave and there inside that cave, he found these very, very old jars and inside the jars were very, very old scrolls. And so he went into town, he told some of the people about it, they came and they looked and they found it. They realized that these scrolls were very, very old. They began to tear them apart uh, and spread them around and people were taking pieces of these old scrolls. Well, word got out and archaeologists came to the site and realized that this was an incredibly important find. And so they went throughout and they tried to get back as many of those fragments and teared pieces uh, that the people had taken and tried to get as much back as they could. But then they continued to search. And in their search in the caves uh, of Qumran near Israel, they found 981 manuscripts. So many of these manuscripts are included in those numbers that we've just talked about. Uh, that were represented by thousands of full, partial, and fragmentary pieces. 225 manuscripts in this find were copies of the Hebrew Old Testament dated between 300 and 100 B.C. Every book except the book of Esther in the Old Testament was found in these caves. 
Now, before this discovery, the earliest known Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts were dated at 900 AD. Okay, so I want us to think about that. The Hebrew Old Testament was written a long, long time ago. We're talking 3,000, 3,500 years ago-ish when Moses would have written it, a long time ago. And the earliest manuscripts we had before this discovery were from 900 AD. So that's a big time gap to the Old Testament books. But after this discovery, we jump a thousand years into the past, 100 to 300, 1200 years into the past, 100 to 300 BC. And so that time gap shrinks. And what they discovered, and I'll show you an example here in a minute of what they discovered as they were looking through those manuscripts that were a thousand to 1200 years older than anything that we had in existence up to that point was that they were virtually identical to the ones from 980. And all that did was help to show that throughout time, these scriptural books have been accurately and reliably copied throughout the ages. This is one of those scrolls that was found in the caves of Qumran. This is called the Isaiah scroll. Isaiah would have written in about 700 BC. So this copy is within about 500 years of the original, where before we only had a copy 1,500 years or so. Now we've got a copy 500 years. And this scroll contains in one scroll almost the entire book of Isaiah. There's some pieces that are missing here and there. So there's a few words that are missing, but almost the entire book contained in this scroll. Very, very valuable find. Isaiah is a big book, a lot of chapters. And so they were able to go back and look at this entire big, large book and see that it matched almost precisely with the copies that they had that were a thousand years old or a thousand years younger than this one. So it's an impressive piece of testimony that this has been reliably copied. Bible Study Magazine asked Dr. Peter Flint, who is a professor of religious studies, he holds the Canada Research Chair in the Dead Sea Scroll Studies. They asked him, above all, what do you want people to understand about the Great Isaiah Scroll? He said, the Great Isaiah Scroll and all the Dead Sea Scrolls are faith-affirming, life-giving, and historically accurate. And that's what we see time and time again. And we could spend a long time. I'm not going to make you spend a long time. We could spend a long time looking at some of the discoveries from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's fascinating. Uh, but here's some other manuscript uh, evidence and some things that I, I think that you might find interesting. So this is actually the earliest manuscript of the New Testament, and it is tiny. Yes, we're not using this manuscript to prove that it was correctly or accurately translated. We just have a tiny little piece, uh, but it's, it's just fascinating that we've got something from that time period. So this uh, manuscript contains John 18, 31 through 33 on the front and John 18, 37 and 38 on the back. It was located in Egypt. It was copied around 125 AD. So this is the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament. Uh, and the Gospel of John was written only a few decades before. Uh, the Bodmer manuscripts. These were manuscripts that were collected by a man named Martin Bodmer in the 1950s. Uh, they contain late 2nd century copies of portions of Luke and John, along with a nearly complete copy of John. So just a little bit later from that little tiny small fragment of John that we've got, we've got nearly the entire book. Uh, and then also second and third century copies of all four gospels, Acts, and the general epistles. Um, also late third century copies of portions of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. So much of the New Testament's represented uh, and it's spanning from the second and third centuries. So we're talking about 100 to 200 years behind the original writing. 
Uh, Chester Beatty Manuscripts. This collection of manuscripts was acquired by Alfred Chester Beatty. It contains late 2nd century copies of most of Paul's letters. Interestingly, these letters were bound together, um, so they were carrying them all together. Uh, early 3rd century copies of the four Gospels in the book of Acts, and an early 3rd century copy of a portion of the book of Revelation. So again, 2nd and 3rd century, we're talking 100 to 200 years after the original writer, writers had written the books. We've got copies uh, throughout these manuscripts. Um, and then these are the oldest book forms of the Old and New Testament. So up on the top uh, is the Codex uh, Vaticanus, and it was copied around 325 to 350, so we're talking about 250 years after the original writers had written the books of the New Testament. It contains the entire Old Testament and most of the New Testament. And then similarly, the uh, Conet, uh, Codex uh, Sinaiticus was copied around AD 350, so we're talking three, 250 to 300 years after the original writers contains most of the Old Testament and entire New Testament. This is the oldest full Bible that we have all together. And so at some point there in the 2nd and 3rd century, they begin to change from scrolls to actually binding paper together. And so these books we have very, very valuable, very early manuscripts that contain the whole thing. And between the two of them, at least, they contain it all. All right, so F.F. F. Bruce and the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Said there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. And I want you to know that too. And I know we, we can't just spend all night on it, um, but would love to discuss any of that more. But there are a lot of manuscripts. They're very, very early. It meets all the rules of textual criticism. And we can believe and accurately know that those scriptures have been copied uh, accurately by scribes uh, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Huge discovery to show that uh, for the Old Testament specifically. Um, and so the next question in my mind becomes, all right, so if they were copied in those original languages, well, and we can trust that, and we trust the fact that they were translated into English well. And so that's what we're going to talk about next for our final section of the sermon tonight. I want to talk to you about textual variants. So we've talked a lot about manuscripts. So a textual variant is when two manuscripts don't agree on something, and there's something that is different between the two manuscripts. Now, there are 6,000 manuscripts, so don't let this big number uh, make you think that there's huge problems, but there are about 150,000 variants in the thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. And there's 24,000 manuscripts when you include other languages as well, but even just talking about Greek. Now, 150,000 variants, and you go, okay, there's 150,000 differences in these manuscripts. To me, that says, how can we be sure that we know that we've got the real thing? And I'll tell you how. One, most variants simply involve a missing letter and a word. Some of them involve reversing the order of two words, like Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Some involve the absence of one or more insignificant words. Only about 50 of the variants have any real significance, and even then, no doctrine of the Christian faith or any moral commandment is affected by them. And so I want you to think about it like this. There are all of these differences among these 6,000 Greek manuscripts. Most of them are very easy when, when those experts are analyzing those manuscripts to recognize the original wording of the text. There are a few that have been hotly debated. 
Uh, some of that we see in day-to-day -day life, depending upon the translation or the version of the scriptures that we use. So if you use an ESV Bible or an NIV Bible or some others, you will notice that there are some verses that are in the King James that are not in the ESV or the NIV. One of those is Acts chapter 8 and verse 27. Now in Acts 8, Philip was talking to the eunuch. He's preaching to him. The eunuch sees water. He says, what's stopping me from being baptized? Philip says, if you believe with your heart, you can. And what does the eunuch say? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He makes his confession of faith. That's Acts 8, verse 37. If you read that in the ESV, it's going to skip right over that. It's going to go from verse 36 to verse 38, and you're not going to see that. There may be a footnote at the bottom uh, that tells you that that's missing and why. But the reason that that's not there in the ESV and in the NIV is because certain English translations are based more primarily on different manuscripts. And so one of those variants, one of those 50 important variants is Acts 8 and verse 37 that has stumped scholars. And here's the basic conundrum. You've got the majority of manuscripts that have Acts 8 and verse 37 in it. It's included. But you've got older manuscripts that don't have it. And so the question in these scholars' minds becomes, do we trust the majority of the manuscripts or do we trust the older manuscripts that are closer to the original. Now you've got those two rules that we talked about. They're kind of competing, right? Do we go with the older? Do we go with the majority? And so different versions throughout history have come down on different sides of that. The King James uh, and the New King James and some other uh, earlier translations were based upon what's called the Textus Receptus. It was a certain uh, Greek manuscripts that had been put together by a man named Erasmus. We'll talk about him in just a second some more. Uh, and they, it was based primarily on those manuscripts. It included Acts 8 and 37, so we see Acts 8 and 37 in the King James. Whereas the ESV, NIV, and some of the more modern translations have based uh, the majority of their text on the older manuscripts that are known as the Alexandrian manuscripts. Uh, Westcott and Hort, you might, you might hear of if you do a little research on this. Um, and so it, there's kind of two camps in the scholarly world, in the translation world, and depending on where you come down on that depends on what you get. So, again, but here's my point with this. Acts 8, verse 37. Wonderful verse. Confession of faith. If it's not there, does that mean that confession of our faith is not anywhere else in Scripture? Does that mean we have no example of that? No. There's, Acts, uh, there's Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said we need to confess him. There's Romans 10 and verse 10. Confession is made unto salvation. Okay, so if Acts 8 37 isn't there, it doesn't change anything in that sense. The Bible still teaches what the Bible teaches. The doctrine is still true. So a lot of those, and really all of those 50 variants, as you look at the very serious ones and where people have come down on different sides, at the end of the day, doesn't change the teaching of Scripture. And so I think we need to grasp firm on that and understand that, that... These variants are not a concern in that sense. And I want to give you another example here just very, very simply, okay? If you're the scholar and I'm asking you to determine the original wording of this verse and you have five manuscripts to work off of, I'm betting that you could look at these five and figure out what it's supposed to say. We've got two of them that say Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. We've got one that says Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. We've got one that says Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. We've got another one that says Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. 
Did you determine what the original wording's supposed to be? We're amateurs, and we could. We could say, yes, it's obviously two and four. That's what it was supposed to be. Some scribe accidentally switched to Jesus and Christ, got it backwards. Somebody forgot a D. Somebody forgot an I. It happens. That's the 149,950 variants that are not significant, okay? That's what those are. And so it's very, very easy to determine what was originally supposed to have been said. And then this is just a graphic illustration of how that happens. You get an accidental, uh, you know, missing word in here, but the next scribes that copy it, they're copying based upon what they believe is an accurate copy, and they don't recognize that there's an error there. So that error gets passed on, and it gets passed on. And so you think about Acts 8.37 or any other examples of, of an important variant. We don't know if the older text, maybe this is the oldest text that we have. And it accidentally left out Acts 8 and 37. Maybe it happens to be older, but it happens to be one that's an error. And we've got a whole lot more of these that are a little bit later. Or maybe it's reversed. Okay, and maybe that's the, the scribe who added the confession. We don't know. There's no way to know that. But hopefully that's uh, understandable in the sense of what these scholars are dealing with and these translators are dealing with. D.A. Carson, who's a Greek scholar, said the purity of text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variants. And that's what I want you to for sure walk away with. All right, real quickly, I want to run you through a quick history of some of the major works that have brought us to the English Bibles that we're reading today. In 382, there was a Bible put together called the Latin Vulgate, put together by Jerome, who was a Latin Catholic priest, confessor, theologian, and historian. Uh, the Pope at that time, Pope Damasus, charged him to create a complete Latin translation. So he translated from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And by 600 AD, the Latin Vulgate was the only version allowed by the Catholic Church. Now, this was a problem for the layperson because most people didn't speak or read Latin. And so the priests who did speak and read Latin could read the Latin Vulgate and then teach to the crowd, but the crowd had no way of verifying what they were hearing was accurate or not because they couldn't read the, the language. Uh, in 400 to 1400 AD, it's kind of known as the Dark or Middle Ages, uh, the priests of the Roman Catholic Church were the only ones educated to understand Latin, so people depended on them entirely. If a person was caught with a non-Latin translation, they could be executed. So the Roman Catholic Church took this very seriously, only the Latin Vulgate, nothing else. It was during this time that many false practices began, such as the selling of indulgences, the ability to purchase salvation for a loved one. Now you can see how corruption would become rampant in a system where the people can't read the Bible and they're depending upon one guy uh, and hoping that he's speaking the truth to them and no way to verify that. Uh, some of these, these practices like selling of indulgences, basically what that would, uh, it got to a point where you could pay money to the Roman Catholic Church to be absolved of a sin that you had committed. Or you could pay money to the Roman Catholic Church in order to get a loved one out of purgatory and into heaven. Uh, obviously, very, very unbiblical. These practices are in part what caused Martin Luther to, to nail those 95 theses on the door of his church in Germany and say, we've got to change this because this is wrong. Okay? So that corruption happened. We've also got some records like this. It's disturbing in history. Pope Leo X in 1514 is quoted as saying, how well we know what a profitable superstition this fable of Christ has been for us and for our predecessors. So the church during the Dark Ages had gotten very, very corrupt, very awful, 
Uh, and so there are going to be people that come onto the scene, and there are people all throughout that are good, godly people. But there's going to be people that come onto the scene that say, hey, we've got to change this. We've got to get out of this. This isn't right. And people who are going to help us as English speakers ultimately get the Bible into our own language. One of those men was named John Wycliffe. He was an Oxford professor, a professor, scholar, and theologian. He opposed the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and he was the first person to produce a handwritten copy of the Bible in English. He translated it out of the Latin Vulgate. So he took what he had available at the time, which was the Latin Vulgate, which was the Roman Catholic Church's Bible, and he translated it into English for English speakers. He did it by hand, and I want you to imagine taking the Bible for a moment, even an English copy, handwriting the entire thing. That's what he did to get it into English. The Pope was so infuriated by his teachings and his translation of the Bible into English that even 44 years after Wycliffe's death, he ordered his bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river because he was committing heresy against the Roman Catholic Church for bringing the Bible into English. Uh, here's an example from Acts chapter 2, 37 and 38 uh, from the Wycliffe Bible. This is English from the 1300s. Uh, and this, of course, is the passage on the day of Pentecost where Peter's preaching to them. Uh, verse 37, I'm just going to read it how I see it. Wani, the uh, heard in these things, the were in compunct and hurdy, and the seeden to Petrie and the other apostolists. Brethren, what shulin we do? And Petrie seed to him, do ye penance, and ecce of you be baptized in the name of Jesu Christ into remission of your sinners, and ye shulin take the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's English in the Wycliffe Bible in the 1300s. But the people that spoke English back then loved and appreciated, I know, the fact that they were able to read the Bible in their own language. In 1455, the Gutenberg Bible was printed. Uh, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 1450s. The first book to ever be printed on it was a Latin Vulgate edition of the Bible that would become known as the Gutenberg Bible. In 1516, Erasmus's Greek Latin New Testament, Erasmus, seeing the Latin Vulgate as corrupt, translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin using a half dozen old partial Greek manuscripts he had acquired. He also was the one who would take those Greek manuscripts and put them together in print, and that was known as the Textus Receptus, which the King James and other translations would eventually be based upon. So Erasmus did a lot of that groundwork. 1526, another important character comes onto the scene named William Tyndale. Uh, using Erasmus's text as his source, Tyndale created a new English translation of the New Testament. This English translation was the first to be printed on the printing press. Copies were distributed quickly, but because an English Bible in the hands of the common man would expose the false practices of the Roman Catholic Church, they confiscated as many as they could, and the owners were often put to death. But Tyndale made this his life's work to get the Bible printed into English and widespread. Tyndale was hunted and avoided capture for 11 years while continuing his work of copying and distributing the English New Testament. But in the end, Tyndale was caught. He was incarcerated for 500 days before he was strangled and burned at the stake in 1536 simply for bringing the Bible into English and giving it to English-speaking people like you and I. Tyndale's last words were recorded as, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. You feel for a guy who's going to his death, and a horrible death, for a purpose that he believed in that benefits you and I today. Tyndale's New Testament, we look at a little bit of the updated English from 200 years later. It has changed a little bit. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hurdies and said, Vuntu Peter and Vuntu the other apostles, ye men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sinners, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we're Holy Ghost instead of Holy Ghost now. We're updating. We're getting closer to modern English. Uh, and that's the Tyndale New Testament. 1535, the Coverdale Bible was the first Bible printed in English, a uh, complete Bible printed in English, used uh, Latin manuscripts. 1539, the Great Bible was the first English Bible authorized for public use. So finally, not, not only the Roman Catholic Church, but also the King of England, the Anglican Church was recognizing we've got to stop denying the English people access to scriptures. So they authorized that for public use, but it was chained to the pulpit. Nobody could take it home. Uh, 1560, the Geneva Bible was created by several uh, contributors, including John Fox. You may recognize that name from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, they used Tyndale's translation as the source for about 90% of this text. The Geneva Bible was the King James Bible before the King James Bible. I mean, that was the Bible that everybody used and everybody spread around. Uh, 1582, 1609, the Dewey Reams Bible became the official Roman Catholic Church English translation. Uh, of course, the Latin Vulgate was the source for that. So they're sticking with their Latin Vulgate, which all of these others are seeing as, as corrupted. They're sticking with that, but they're ch translating it into English for the Catholic Church. And then in 1611, we get to the King James Bible. Uh, this was commissioned by King James I of England as a translation to end all translations. Uh, it was the result of the combined effort of about 50 scholars. At the time, it was not called the King James Bible. It was called the Holy Bible. Uh, they took into consideration the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Reims New Testament. That's that official Roman Catholic Church version based on the Latin Vulgate. Uh, based upon the Textus Receptus that Erasmus had put together, those Greek manuscripts, as well as all of these other sources, the original was a 16-inch tall pulpit Bible, and smaller individual versions were printed a year later. This would become the most printed book in the history of the world and the most popular English translation for hundreds of years. Now, it's important to note the past 250 years or so, virtually all King James Bibles published in America have used a revised version of the 1611, completed in 1769, called the Standard Oxford Edition. Um, so we're not actually in the pew or anywhere else uh, looking at a 1611 Bible unless you bought a Bible that says 1611 King James. Uh, this is from the 1611 King James, uh, that same passage. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said, Vuntu Peter, we still have got a V instead of a U there. And to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, Vuntu them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sinners, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we've made it to Holy Ghost, so we know that we are advancing in English, but it's still got a lot of things that are different from English today. 1885, English Revised Version was the first major English revision of the King James. In 1901, the American Standard Version came about, which was the first major American revision of the King James. So all of those are focused in that same vein as the King James is. The New American Standard Bible came on the scene in 1971. This was published as a modern and accurate word-for-word -word translation. It was also a revision of the ASV. Um, so I'll let you know that uh, according to all of the, the research that I have done, many, many, many scholars and people put this up there as one of the most accurately translated common uh, English translations that you can go pick up at the store real easily. The NASB 
Um, one of the complaints about it is it's not super easy to read. And you can imagine that because if it's a word for word, strictly word for word, Greek and English don't read the same. They don't speak the same. And so if you're literally going word for word, it's going to sound a bit different and a bit odd in English. It's not exactly word for word, exactly in that sense, but it's very, very close. So accuracy wise in ASB, very, very accurate, a bit hard to read. Uh, 1973, the new international version came onto the scene and it was published as a modern phrase for phrase or thought for thought. Okay, so we've got two schools of thought on translating the, or, or updating the Bible into English. One is word for word. We want to make sure it's accurate. The other is thought for thought. We want to make sure it's readable. And so the new international version um, scholars that were putting that together, they would read a thought or a phrase in the Greek and then they would say, what is the correct raise or thought in English and we'll write that. So doesn't matter if it's word for word, we're just going to take a thought and try to accurately put that in there. Now what that has turned into, and as you can imagine, when you're going phrase for phrase and not focused on a word for word, uh, there's a lot of bias that can be entered into that. And there's a lot of uh, people's viewpoints and doctrinal viewpoints and all that that can be added in. Uh, and so the new international version, very readable, not super accurate. So letting you know, uh, just based on the research that I've done, doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you read the NIV. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the accuracy is not good in the NIV. Um, it is readable, not super accurate. 1982, uh, New King James Version came onto the scene. Uh, it modernized the King James Version. They tried to basically just take out the these and thous, uh, put in the, the U and updated language there. They did change a few other things. And then in 2002, the English Standard Version came onto the scene. And this was published as a translation to bridge the gap between the accuracy of the NASB and the readability of the NIV. So the, the people putting together the ESV, their purpose was we want it to be accurate, but we also want it to be readable. So kind of a middle ground between the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version. All right. So in conclusion, Miller Burroughs, who was American biblical scholar and leading authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he said, interpretations depending upon the exact words of a verse must be examined in light of all we know about the history of the text. The essential truth and the will of God revealed in the Bible, however, have been preserved unchanged through all the vicissitudes in the transmission of the text. The experts all agree on that. All of the experts that are worth their, their salt agree on the fact that we can be sure that what we have today has been accurately and reliably transmitted throughout the centuries so that you and I can read the word of God as it was intended for us to be able to read and to hear. So I go back to the scripture that we started with, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. I believe that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I believe the question we asked at the beginning of this session this evening, is the Bible textually reliable? I believe the answer is yes. And the evidence is a resounding yes. Now, the next question that we're going to tackle next time that I'm up here is, all right, so the words have been accurately transmitted to us. Now, are those the words of God or just mere man? I believe, of course, they are the inspired words of God. So we'll continue this series, but I appreciate your attention tonight. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you have an opportunity to be obedient to the gospel tonight, to be baptized and have your sins washed away. If you're here and you are a Christian, maybe you've been struggling uh, and we as a church can step in and can help you and can pray for you, and we want to do that. So if we can help you in any way tonight, we ask that you please come, sit on our front pews, we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.